This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsburg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsburg and this is my show. Thanks for being here. This is episode 160 with Paul Middleditch. I'll tell you a little bit more about Paul in just a moment. Uh, this show is brought to you by the people at Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher, O-S-H-E-R. They're the people that have uh, supported me and helped me make this show all year and um, you can too. A lot of people became new subscribers after a little teaser of the Dr. Carl episode. If you subscribe for as little as five bucks a month, you can get access to the um, additional uh, exclusive episodes, which I make solely for the people who do support the show on Patreon. And uh, without Patreon support, this show wouldn't exist. So thank you very much to all y'all. I hope you enjoyed the Dr. Carl episode. There's heaps of other exclusives up there. I hope your week was good. I traveled so much this week. Um, Brisbane, Sydney, Perth, all within five days um, across the country and back again. Uh, watched a remarkable film on the plane. Um, as you go, the overnight flight from Sydney to Perth is called The Red Eye. The overnight flight from Perth to Sydney is called The Midnight Horror because it's longer on the way to Perth, it's shorter on the way back. You land after only a few hours in the air anyway. It, it's wild. There's, any, there's enough time to watch a film on a domestic flight in Australia, which is uh, nice. And I watched this remarkable documentary about an Indigenous Australian man called Putupari, uh, Putupari and the Rainmakers, it was called. It's about a native title claim, a native title land claim that stemmed, went from about 1994 to 2011 at least uh, in the Western Desert. Uh, the Western Desert is northwestern Australia. If you go south and east from Broome, six days drive, that's pretty much where the land claim was over their waterhole. And I feel ashamed to say it, um, but I'm sure it's not uncommon that I just don't know enough about what happened to the Indigenous culture in this country before Europeans showed up. And that by living here, I am complicit, I guess. And whatever I can do around that, Whatever contrition I can do around that, I try to do. I do know, I remember telling Nakia Louis this, that the more that I find out about Indigenous issues and Indigenous history in Australia, the, the more I realise I don't know. And watching this film, I realised there was a lot I didn't know, particularly about a thing called the Canning Stock Route, which essentially displaced so many different language groups across a vast swathe, 2,000 kilometres or more of desert, just humongous devastation to cultures 
that were continuously connected to the land for thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of years. Um, it's a story about these people, um, Putapari and his grandfather, who his grandfather's friends, and he, uh, they call them the rainmakers because they go out into the Western desert where they lived before they were displaced by this stock route. And they find this little patch of moist dirt. It's probably about as long as my arm. And they go, there it is. We found it. We found it. And they started digging it. This is six days drive southwest from Fitzroy Crossing. I'm talking middle of nowhere. They dug and dug and dug and dug. They got about six to eight feet down and uh, there was clean water down there. Now, it's hot out there. It's inhumanely hot. It'll kill you. It's that hot. And this is a waterhole that kept their people and their culture alive for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But once they dug the waterhole out, then the men started, well, they, they basically stripped down to their shorts and they started smothering themselves in the mud and they started bringing the water up and dancing this particular dance. They were singing this particular song and then they turn around and say, we've got to go, we've got to go now. They all jump back in the land cruisers and they jet. 10Ks, 15Ks away and the camera pans back and this, in the middle of the desert, this colossal thunderstorm, lightning, this humongous storm cloud just opened up on the desert. During the course of the film, they went out to this waterhole four times and at least twice they made it rain. They made it rain. Now, I can't, again, I can't say that we all have to live with white guilt, but just an awareness and an acceptance that we live on land that was taken from people who were here before we were here and they had a connection with the land that we can't possibly comprehend within the language that we use to describe culture and connection with land. I've just moved into a new apartment, um, so now I, I own an apartment, but that's all within the definition of what I know for what it is to own a place. However, these people have such a connection with the land are people who transcend the barrier between them and nature that somehow, I don't know how, in complete sync with the physics and the energy of an area to the point where they're able to make it rain. Now, this is not the first time I've heard or read about um, people who are in the, in, the, in the desert, in the Western Desert, who are able to make it rain. There's another film called First Contact, which documents the same thing happening. Um, a group of people are running away from some uh, white folks who were trying to bring them in, made it rain so it erased their footprints on a lake bed. Um, it's not the first time I've heard about it. It's not the first time I've read about it. It doesn't ever cease to amaze me that what I try and define a connection with a place as is completely limited by my paradigm and my experience of a connection to a place. I can't actually comprehend or conceive of a connection to a place that's so intense that you are one, truly one with the area, with the land. Uh, just, it's astonishing. It made me tear up twice, which kind of sucks about plane movies. I mean, I'm having an argument or if I'm having a heavy conversation with Audrey, she gets upset that I don't show any emotion and I just kind of shrug my shoulders because I go into this automaton mode sometimes. But put me on a plane, give me a good key change and a good pop song and I'll, I'll start crying. <laughs> I don't know what it is for. But it's, a, it's an amazing film, Pudupari and the Rainmakers. I hope you can, uh, hope you can check it out. Um, I do want to tell you about my guest today because I'm super excited. I got a chance to speak with this cat. 
Paul Middleditch is a multi-award winning director and filmmaker originally from New Zealand. And you can follow his adventures and the adventures of his production company, Plaza Films, at Plaza Films, one word, on Instagram. Paul's the mastermind behind bringing some of the most memorable commercials you can think of to your screens in the last 20 years. If you remember, it's a big ad for Carlton Draft or the blokes running across the field in robes, that brilliant Aussie lamb commercial with uh, Luke Jacobs at the start for diversity, that really, it's all one shot, incredible, uh, from a little early this year. Um, the, uh, the Carlton Draft ads where the beer glass just demolishes house after house when it's parachuting down for the halftime show. Do you remember, are you not happy, Jan? Not happy, Jan? That's him. That's Paul. That is Paul. He's the one that directed all of those commercials. He's also the guy behind the new Air New Zealand campaign featuring Dave the Goose, which I'm sure you've seen by now. As you'll hear, Paul really throws him in, throws himself into his role. Uh, Paul actually donned the green skin suit that you've seen when people are doing motion capture stuff, and he acted out all the physicality that he wanted the goose to have so that the animators would have something great to work with. Uh, Paul's a very interesting guy. He's a very funny man, and we had a really good chat. A special thanks to Air New Zealand for helping me tee up this chat with Paul Middleditch. You can actually watch and edit of the episode of Paul and I at uh, website betterwaytofly.com.au. If you go to, that's a one word, betterwaytofly.com.au. And over there, it also includes some behind the scenes footage of the making of Air New Zealand's brilliant new content featuring Dave the Goose. And um, New Zealand creative agency True created the idea and Paul was the director that brought it to life. We actually recorded this conversation in the very swish Air New Zealand lounge at Sydney International Airport, which is an interesting place to come and go from if you aren't traveling. If you don't have a boarding pass or you haven't just got off a plane, it's a weird place to try and get in or out of. And well done. Good. I'm glad it is. But we had to go through all the, the wild security measures and backstage. And we even walked through the Kidman Corridor. Uh, I don't think it's actually called that, but I like to call it that, the Kidman Corridor, which is goes from a little office where they kind of do private security clearances and customs clearances, and they can walk them straight out the door, straight onto the plane. Um, I guess that's where Nicole and Hugh and stuff like that, where they go when they want to get on the plane, but uh, we got to go in it, which is exciting. So I'm glad you get to be a part of this chat. Enjoy a lovely afternoon with the wonderful, the funny, the talented Paul Middleditch. Paul. I'm good. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no, it's exciting. It's yeah, it is. I'm I'm excited. You know, uh, because uh, independent digital broadcasting is an exciting space to be in. It is. And and here we are. We are in it. A part of the very disruption that will threaten the incumbent ways that you and I make money. Exactly. Uh, but you know, it's all good. It is really good. Where are we? We are in um, the the lounge, the Air New Zealand lounge at Sydney International Airport, which is pretty cool. The new lounge is awesome, and this colour scheme is is fab, and the chairs are actually comfy. Yes. You know how you go to all these places; they don't want you to sit down because the chairs are awful to sit in. And a lot of a lot of lounges I've found. It's just, it's kind of like a secret world that exists within airports, only for people who fly a lot, like exactly. a lot, a lot, a lot. Exactly. And then there's levels of secret world. There there's the the general kind of gate sitting around, sleeping across four seats, sort of yeah. general populace. Yeah. And then there's the 
one particular lounge where mm. you can go to and there's, you know, usually a little buffet, mm. maybe you, you can get a free beer, yeah. that'd be nice. Yeah. And then there's the other lounge where yeah. like, what can I get you, Mr. Middleditch? Absolutely. The other Where's the menu? Oh, no, no, we just make what you want. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, you know, with the, these fruit are in season, you know you're in the <laughs> right place, you know, and uh, yeah, and particularly when they, you know, when they, they cook it all fresh for you and stuff, it's pretty... It's pretty good. It's and this is, what, this is one of those rooms. It is. It's one of those rooms, and I don't know why they allowed us to have this much of this cooler place. Yeah, it's... Uh, for us to... For taking us up to a large this. amount of real estate. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> With a really good With view. Cape paying customers can actually you, be sitting on this shit. But you carry a lot of sway with the good folks at Air New Zealand. For mm -hmm. You've just done their, their latest uh, television campaign. Yeah, Dave the Goose. Dave the Goose. Yeah, he's, uh, he's awesome. Well, he's... He's a goose, but he's Brian Brown goose, which is pretty fab. Because um, I've known Brian for a long time, worked with him in the past, and that was pretty exciting, working with Brian again, because he's an amazing actor, amazing guy. Well, the goose is part Brian, part you. Yeah, the goo the Brian's Brian's the good, well, I'm, I'm kind of the idiot leaping around physical stuff. They got me in a green suit and put dots all over me, and. And they said they had to give me a false stomach, you know, like a woman pregnant, like silicon stomach, which looked awful. So I had to wear that thing um, and basically goose around and, and do all of the um, all of the movements for the goose and stuff. Which I know this sounds weird, but I actually looked at what geese do and how they move and their necks and stuff, which are quite like they're quite like sort of uh, snakes. Which was good, he's kind of cool. I mean, I remember when I first saw the first finished animation of one moment in it, where the uh, pilot, I'm uh, sorry, the, um, the steward goes, um, Kia ora, welcome aboard. And then the goose goes, sorry. And literally it was um, Brian's ad lib with that and they did it with the little goose doing the little head move and it was perfect. And then I went, right, we're on a winner. This is gonna be great. Because so that's, I think that's, that's a really tricky part uh, which we'll get into, I'm sure, mm. but when it comes to um, animating uh, uh, anthropomorphic uh, human qualities onto animals, mm. you can it can either look fantastic mm. or it can be a bit like... Shit. Yeah. <laughs> like the straight-to-DVD Disney stuff that not everybody sees. <laughs> Tinkerbell. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Like that. But that did go straight-to-DVD. Straight oh, no, the Barbie movies do as well, but we digress. No, that, no, that's we okay. But we were talking about 3D animation. We were talking about 3D animation. And the animation. guys who made it um, are this amazing um, post place called Blockhead, which are in, um, in New, Ze they're New Zealand based, but they're also now here in Australia. And uh, they did an astounding job because it was an enormously long period that it took to get it that good. And there was so many layers of stuff you'd keep going back and reworking. Um, and it was interesting because just before we started doing this, probably the best piece of character animation, which was the Jungle Book, came out, and that was uh, that was an eye opener. I mean, it was like we all looked at him and went, oh, "Wow!" <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. And so, so yeah, the, even though we're dealing with one character, I think the interesting thing, and this is the interesting, sad, and scary, um, is some people think we actually shot it with a real goose, and we animated the mouth. And stuff, you know what I mean, like Babe and stuff yeah. like that. People think we actually shot it with a real, and some of it does look like a real goose, of course. Um, and the goose looks very believable and very real. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people. It's. It, I think what's great about it is he's he's such a complex character in terms of 
um, just the layers of, of how he, which is what you know Brian Brown brings to it so wonderfully. And I think that's why people love it from that point of view because he's he's you're not sort of watching an animated character; you're just watching a guy. Yeah, an Aussie goose guy. Well, can you take us through it? Because yeah, I mean, every, commercials, television commercials are a part of everybody's day. Yeah, no matter who you are, what you do through your day, you will see at least 15 seconds of some sort of animated commercial uh, or, mm. or visual moving commercial mm. through your day, whether it's on your phone, on your tablet, on your laptop, on a billboard now when you drive down the street. <laughs> and that's what happens all the time when I'm doing stuff. Somebody from an agency will say, hey, I've got to show you this reference, and then that will come up and go, oh, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, they just come up. I, I made and that. it's such a, yeah, such an irony because we're trying to get to something because we're making an ad and we hate watching the ad because we... Anyway, keep but going. But these things are a part of everybody's life and you've been doing it for nearly 20 years. Over 20 years Over I've 20 been doing years. it. You've been... I've been directing commercials now for... Um, shit, I can do the math. I've been doing them... Uh, I've been doing them nearly 30 years. I started when I was a kid. Like, a real, like, serious. I started shooting ads at the age of 20. Like, television commercials. Wow. I started, I started directing when I was 17. Well, I, want, I, want, I do want to get to that. Mm. Uh, there's so much to talk about. Not only have you done this incredible commercial for in New Zealand, which um, I'm guessing people in countries where English isn't the first language are marvelling at, <laughs> uh, judging by the views that it's seen yeah. online. But you're also single-handedly responsible for that many catchphrases that Australians utter to each other right. each oh, and yeah. every day. Okay, yeah. If you could count, what do you think your top three catchphrases that people quote daily that you're responsible for? Well, the first one would be not happy Jan. Not happy Jan was one of your commercials? Yeah. Um, um, go away, <laughs> which, was, which was Barbara from Bankworld. Um, <laughs> go away. That was a line I actually came up with when we were on set. This is funny. Um, and um, we're in an ad. It's a very big ad. It'll, those would be the three. <laughs> it's kind of insane. But yeah. Which, I mean, that spans, that's a, at least the last 10 years or so. Uh, or 19, 1999 was not Happy Jen. And um, yeah, so it's pretty close to 20 years. That's extraordinary mm. that you are a part of our cultural lexicon. Mm. Through advertising. It's, uh, it's interesting because it's quite, um, I suppose the nature of advertising is always a tricky one when it comes to art versus the commercial side of it. What's it like when people quite not happy jam back at you when you're on set or something? Oh, it's, it happens all the time when people don't even know you've done it. I mean, I think the thing was not happy John was the funny thing with... John Howard, I oh, think, yeah, was yeah. pretty good. But um, no, you get you get that all the time. People just go, "Not happy, Jan," and you, yeah, they don't know if you've done it. It doesn't matter. It's all right. That's kind of funny. You can't really stop down and say, "I actually can't." No, I. Yeah. But that doesn't mean anything to anybody. Hey, I directed that. They go, "What does that mean?" You know, if I acted in it like Deborah Kennedy, who did it, but I don't think she ever wanted to do another ad ever because Deborah was on stage, I think, in Perth, and she came out and they started saying, "Not," and she was doing. I think she was doing Macbeth, and she was playing Lady Macbeth, and she came out and they started going, not happy, Jan. And she was, uh, yeah, she's a very, she's a very strong, fabulous actress, a strong woman. She would have hit the fucking roof. She would have thrown the shits on that one very much. So I don't think she would have ever wanted to do another act, I think. It's like um, Michael Caton from the, uh, 
He's a great Australian It's going actress. in the pool room. Uh, yeah. Straight to the pool room. Straight to the pool room. Tell him he's dreaming. <laughs> People would shout, tell him he's dreaming. Right. Out of car windows as, it, as, as, as they drove past him. Yeah, I, I, and it's interesting because I think as a director, you're the person responsible for it, but nobody knows who you are. Ever. I, I remember one of my first experiences, uh, I was 21 directing a Pepsi commercial in Malaysia with this um, band, a New Zealand band that was huge in Malaysia. And uh, I got up in front of 2,000 kids who were, had been brought in to be extras for this. And I spoke to them, and I was amazed they, all, they understood everything, but yeah, I said to them, hey, we're going to make this great thing, let's all get excited. You know, I can't wait for you guys to, to, to make this out, the best Pepsi ad we're ever going to ever gonna do. What do you say? And they all went, yeah, 2,000 of them. And I went off and went, well, that went really well. And they said, they think you're, they think you're Spielberg. <laughs> I don't know I was 21 years old, but for some reason, apparently, they all thought Steven Spielberg was directing the ad. It had nothing to do with me. So from that point of view, it's interesting that only somebody like Spielberg, who I actually have met, which was wonderful, um, uh, you know, there's only a few directors who are famous enough to actually be recognised or even get recognition of any way. So I think, and particularly in advertising, you're well down the, well down the ladder. Yeah. You know, so you know, when, I, when I die, it'll be who? You know, oh, piffle. <laughs> what guy? <laughs> I, no, not at yeah. all. But you know. So we're in Sydney right now. Mm. How far is this from where you grew up? I grew up in Wellington in New Zealand. Um, but I've been here in Australia longer than I was in New Zealand. Uh, so I'm an Anzac, you know, and I'm deep into military history. So I'm kind of like that. And uh, yeah, and so I, uh, I've, I've come, yeah, I. I came from Wellington, but I came in my early 20s. And, and directing here didn't become the most fashionable job in the world. Back then, it was hard work to do. Not that it's not hard work now, but it was really hard to get into. And, you know, had to do apprenticeships and all that sort of stuff. Whereas now, the industry is so different. And there's so many more directors and young directors and so on. And when I started, um, uh, there were very few young directors doing it. So I was able to get in and start very, very young. I, well, I left school when I was when I was 17 and started directing. Well, when you graduated high school? Well, yeah, I just got out of, out of high school when I was 17 and started directing. Now That's how, all I've ever done. Wait a sec. Okay, so, so if you, people would have seen your work. Mm -hmm. Can you take us through, if we could back step, go backwards to the first point where someone calls you up and says, hey, Paul. Yeah. I want to do an ad for an airline and there's a goose involved. Or does the goose come later? Like, where does it even start? Where does a project like well, that start, even Well, begin? it always starts with an agency and it starts with a script and an idea. Um, advertising, I've always, and I, I think it's true and always has been true, it's just about really good ideas. The best advertising is good ideas. Great technique is always very helpful and that craft is, but um, it's always about great ideas. And I think that ultimately some of the simplest ads I've ever seen that I love so much are just that they're a great idea. I mean, we were discussing this before we started this, that Old Spice thing you're talking about. It's so simple because even something like that ad, which is about the kind of idiocy of the language that's being used, um, is just really, and it could only exist in advertising. There's you know, ideas that can only exist as an advertising concept. So for instance, um, an ad that I did, uh, the big ad, for Carlton Draft, I did, did pretty much all the Carlton Draft ads. Um, that was about um, 
you know, that was a brilliant idea. I mean, even the concept of made from beer. But the idea of making an ad about people singing about being in an ad. And yeah, it could only exist in advertising, but that's why it's so, so, I think those sort of ads, the reflexivity of it is brilliant. And that's, what's, that's what I love about, you know, um, advertising from an idea's point of view, where they actually start to mo uh, sort of you know, mock their own mock their own industry. So, Air New Zealand, the, the agency, the advertising agency that Air New Zealand go to. Yeah, New Zealand was a say, you did ask me a question, didn't no, you? That's you okay. asked me a question about where did it come Your from. Your job to answer yes, is my, no, job, no, no. my job to ask them. Let me just, for folks who aren't in the industry, so Air New Zealand, we have an airline, we want more people to get on our airline, we want people to realise that we fly to different parts of the world, yep. not just New, just New Zealand and Sydney, we can fly you to Buenos Aires, we can fly you to mm. Texas, we can fly you to Los Angeles. Um, what should we do? How can we get this across? I oh, know. How can we showcase the inside of the planes? Da 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 da. They go to an agency. Mm -hmm. They say, "This is what we want." The agency come back with, "We've got this idea." Yep. There's a goose involved. Yeah, they pitch it to the client. The client goes, "Yes, I love it," or "I don't." And that's why a huge amount of something like Air New Zealand is about having a great client who goes, "They recognise, yeah, this is a great idea." It's very easy to do safe advertising, of course. This is the this is the airline that had Richard Simmons do their in-flight safety. That's true. All right. So. Yeah. Let's yes. not forget, they're not afraid. No, no, and that's the tradition that they have, though. I mean, their advertising for a long period of time has been great. And I think even down to... I mean, I remember seeing the, the All Blacks in-flight thing that they did, which I loved, I thought was really awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I think Air New Zealand has a reputation of entertaining. And I think people sort of pursue it. It's like um, uh, the pedigree of something like Guinness and advertising. and uh, You know, you always look, and now, for instance... Something like Old Spice, they're now known for great ads. Yeah. You know? It's funny, as you said that, all I can think is da 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 I can't afford to pay the rights for that song. Anyway. So they come to you with a script and they pitch the client. The client said, this is great. Goose, great idea. Yep. Do they then have a list of directors or the agency just knows we know one guy and one guy only that can pull us off? Well, no, yeah, no, there's a lot of directors out there. I mean, this industry is, you know, it's a very popular job and has become more popular. Um, I think also when technology, it's become a lot easier to be able to attain um, experience now because you can shoot stuff really easily. Um, I, when I started, I had to, you know, ask my dad for a Super 8 camera and... Um, and then, uh, you know, you have to wait a week for the film to go and get processed and come back and realise it's overexposed. And then, you know, you would then go back and redo it or whatever. And then video came out, VHS. <laughs> and I remember running around with a, with a, bat, a porter pack and a car battery. It was a two-piece unit. Yeah, it was like, I looked like, you know, it, yeah, it was just, and a huge camera. It was nothing, you know, it was really um, bulky and massive and unwieldy. But I used to make all my student films with that. And I won a competition in New Zealand called Spot On four years in a row, which got me into, because it was judged by professionals. And then they said, why don't you start making stuff? So I got offered to do music videos and television stuff. Um, so I kind of just left school having, you know, my film school, because there was no film school in New Zealand. I self-taught myself at school in a way. Um, so it, it is interesting that uh, what you were saying about, um, about directing and, and directors, yes, there are a lot of them out there. So they would go, okay, who can we get to do this or who's available and so on. But yeah, they normally have a, a list. Um, and I'm lucky enough 
over a long period of time for people to obviously know my work, um, but also have a lot of long-term um, uh, ongoing working relationships. I've worked with some people for nearly 25 years, you know, and, uh, and work with them, you know, probably every year. So it's great like that. It's really so, good. So these people have, have then called you up and you go, oh, I know that agency and I know that client. This mm. will be a fun gig. Oh, yeah. I reckon yeah. I can bring something to this. Yeah. And, oh, there's a goose involved. Oh, yeah. okay, I know how I'm going to do this. Is that the sort of stuff that's well, flashing through you the head? thing that was a real challenge with this was I went, I've seen a lot of animated, I've seen a lot of ads with animated characters. Um, and normally, normally, nine times out of ten, there's something lacking. So I was really excited about um, wanting to do this and do this really well. Um, and I wanted to make sure it was really funny and I wanted to make sure that it was um, something that people hadn't really seen done this way. And, and what was interesting for me was I, th I think when I pitched it to them, my pitch as a director was more rather than, hey, I mean, apart from, hey, this is a great idea, as I was saying, advertising's ideas, but I went, hey, this is, as a director, my view is I would like to give you a series of things that I see as possible problems rather than, hey, we can do it like this. I go, it's got to be like, we're going to have to do it this way. We're going to have to do this or it's not going to work. What were those things? Those things were to do with blocking. They were to do with the animators following the, um, the performance of the, of the actor. Very similar to what Pixar do. But more than that, it was also studying the actual animal itself. And they actually had a real, they had a stuffed goose. Poor goose. Whatever they found, but they in the, found, in the they found it. No, yeah, they found a stuffed goose, um, and they scanned all that, and so it's incredibly lifelike. Um, but then, yeah, we we basically went and watched lots of stuff, and they're very, uh, they're very, they're quite hilarious in terms of the way they walk and how they move, and like their their heads are like snakes. They're quite amazing, um, and so it was it was a lot of fun looking at that. But then going, we've got to really make this. Um, this animal behave and act like it would in the real situation. So that was really fun. So there was a lot of um, lot of things to uh, to be mindful of. It was going to be a long process, and it was a really long process. But it turned out six months a year. Um, I think the post on it was anywhere up to four to five months because um, it's a two minute commercial, which is really long. Um, and he's in everything, so it was. Yeah, it was, it was a, a, a remarkable job that they did. As a director, did you think, who do I know that can do this? No one. I'll do it. At what point did you decide, I'm going to be the goose? I don't know, because it's certainly, there's not an ego thing in it, because I got dressed up in this green outfit, and they had tracking markers all over me. So that's basically, so as just, you moved, the animators so I was, yeah, see yeah, yeah, where your elbows are. See, and, and a lot of that was more to do with, body language for timing for humour because what I did is I had Brian's soundtrack and I was miming to it so yeah Brian and I, I'd be actually miming being the goose um, and they had my cap because I wear a cap normally anyway so that was kind of the beak area and then they wanted to make sure I had enough girth because um, the so front of a goose protrudes yeah, he's got he's got a beer gut basically well, and it's and, weird and, <laughs> and yeah. It was a big gut yeah. thing in it. And so they gave me a pregnant woman's silicon stomach. Excellent. Um, that's good times. And so I whacked this on. 
Um, and so they had sort of five cameras going when we were shooting, and I spent oh, half, maybe three quarters of a day blocking the whole thing. Um, and then that material um, was used and got out too. Hmm. They decided, nobody said, do you mind if we show this? Yeah, no, this looks good. Um, so, no, I have seen it floating around and it's... So they made the big, uh, like, kind of Lily Tomlin chair for you to sit on. They made, a, like, a really big airline seat? N- no, no. This is you on a couch? Yeah, it's just me, yeah. yeah. There's stuff they build up and, yeah, no, it wasn't that. And I think another reason I did it was because um, I'm cheap. Because... They didn't, they wouldn't have to pay anybody to do that. But as a director, how are you going to, like, particularly there's a, there's a, there's a line in the ad where um, they refer to Pavlova <laughs> and there's a look to camera. That, yeah. That the That's an does. Eddie Murphy look. That's Eddie Murphy's look from um, Trading Places where they took, do you know that yeah, look where he I talks about the, the um, uh, pork belly as such as one would find in a, a bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich? And he does that look, and it's a very deliberate half head cock turn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I did that, um, but I stole that from Eddie. Yeah, yeah. but you are bre- basically you're breaking down. I mean, as a director, most of the time you're trying to get actors mm. to do the things that you see in your brain. Mm. This time you didn't have to do it. No, but it was kind of cool because when we got the timing, it took us a long time to get that head at the, exactly the right time and hold the shot for the right amount of time to get the humour from it. You know, when he goes, yeah, you got anything Australian? Like Pav, <laughs> and it's and it's, and it's uh, yeah, it was great fun. Those little things is where he came to life. That was uh, I loved all, loved all that stuff. Because him as a character, you see, um, Brian. What I love is, is is Dave as a character. It was very much like Brian walking into the studio. He's yeah. like, "G'day, ditchy ego, my good. And you know, he get into the uh, get into the booth and. Um, well, he doesn't swear. I swear a bit, but he didn't swear. But um, you know, he'd get into the booth, and you know, he he was very animated and very eager, and great ideas. So I, you had this kind of idea of this goose, who's it's almost like his first trip. You know, those really annoying people you fly with, who ask you inane stuff like, "You going on a trip?" Well, yeah, I'm in a plane. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and that Where sort of going? stuff. Exactly. Yeah, off to LA. Me too. Funny you think, and and that was what was wonderful about Brian is he had the idea. It's almost like this goose came from Orange, you know what I mean? And he he hadn't really seen much. We had a whole sub thing going on, which I won't go much into. But the thing is, the idea of what would it have been like if he was at the because we shot at the Mondrian in LA, which is probably the most distinctive bar. It's a beautiful bar. It's on and Sunset everybody Boulevard. Everybody who knows it. Walk, sees that and goes, they did shoot that in LA. Yeah, and I was exactly like, wow, where. you went to LA for that, you really did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he comes in and and, um, and we actually had the idea, what would it be like if he, was, if he met a girl, you know, and how would he be responding to her, you know, if, uh, you know, if she was trying to pick him up or something like yeah. that. And his inane responses were, you know, like, hey, what are you going to be doing later? Probably sleeping and have something to eat. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and you just had the idea that this, this guy... And I think that would be an exciting thing for the continuing journey of Dave to see what it'd be like if he met another goose, like, from South America. Oh. It'd be kind of... Migratory. Oh, well, you know what I mean? Could you? That'd be cool, <laughs> man. I mean, what a brilliant idea. There's no better idea, I reckon, than a, a migrating bird chooses this airline to fly with. <laughs> it's kind of good, eh? I mean, it's brilliant. <laughs> So. Well, if this airline flies to, we're talking New Zealand, they fly to South America, so you never they know. They do, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh. Hint. 
Uh, yeah, no, no, but I'm saying, uh, um, uh, but I think it would be great if you if we could do stuff like if he goes to Europe and stuff and things like that. And not everyone's gonna be not everyone's gonna be a uh, you know directing a commercial today. Mm. But everyone, but everyone listening, everybody watching, at some point will have to come up with a creative solution for something. Mm. Clearly, as someone who's if, the, if there's one thing like I know uh, as, a, as from my career in television and my career as a, as a photographer, mm. um, you're not really shooting photos, you're solving problems all day. That's all yeah. you do is solve problems. And if what is on this... It's people skill stuff. Yeah. It really is. It's so, like, I, I, it's sort of somewhere you get, it, it almost, while it feels like the, the gravitas of the United Nations, it's not obviously that important. But when you're in a room and discussions are going on about things that appear to be that important you know I, I've had I've had discussions about you know um, um, the the I've had discussions about the height of the top on a beer and how high it has to be to the millimeter the head the head and how they view that as being how how long the beer has been there how fresh it is and you know and it's like and, you know, I'll never have that time back again. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. But I guess what I want to ask is that not everyone is going to be, you know, not everyone's going to be directing a, a commercial today. Yeah. But everyone's going to have to come up with a creative way to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. So when you're faced with a problem, yeah. whatever it might be, what do you do? How do you, how do you go about solving those problems in a way that makes you what you do? Well, I tell you, here's, here's a great quote that, that I heard, which isn't mine. If it had been, it would have been good. But um, it's like everybody can be a director when it's going great. You can only really be a director and solve it when it's going bad. And that's the truth. Like when everything's going fine and everything's just falling into place, you really. But it's when uh, things don't turn out the way you expect, something goes wrong, say uh, a performance isn't how you're thinking, or just the real simple stuff like. Because this is interesting where they go, hey, this is going to be funny. And you go, I hope it's going to be funny. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, but, you, you, you know, with me, you're going to have a pretty good shot. It'll be funny. But from that point of view, there is a lot of expectation. You do go, it's like a stand-up comedian, make me laugh. But very much so, that's what you do when you're, particularly if you're shooting television commercials and you're shooting funny ads. There are a lot of ads out there that are trying to be funny or want to be funny, but aren't. Um, you know, and, you know, there's been plenty of situations where... where um, you do stuff and, and you think it's going to be really hilarious and it isn't. And on page it can be brilliant. And when you do it, it isn't. And sometimes also um, you look at it and you think, oh, this idea's all right, but then when it's actually made, it's really funny or, or really effective or emotional. So, so I think from a director's point of view, when you say, you know, um, you've, got to solve, you've got to solve problems, it happens all the time. And I think the pressure on you to... Um, to come up consistently, but if you do it, talking about humour, um, it's got to do with experience and time, and I think that's why over the years I've, I think I've, I've got better and better, based purely on the fact that I'm doing more and more stuff. I've shot like 2,000 ads, you know, and I was quite excited to find out that Ridley Scott shot that many as well, and I'm a fan of Ridley's, and I, for, for a long time, I thought he was really tall. I don't know, he just has a, you know, he's got a cigar, and he looks like that. He's my height. I felt really good. <laughs> you know, I'm 5'7". And, you know, and I like that. And I like the idea that really... Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This guy was 5'7". So, yeah... That's just. That's just. I'm just sorry. I just pictured Ridley Scott standing next to the actor that played the alien, who was, I think, six, yeah. eight, or seven two. Yeah, he was a big. He was an athlete. Big, yeah, basketballer. He was a big. Um, uh, I thought it was from Africa. Something like that. Was it? Mm, yeah. I love Alien. It's oh, one of my favorite films. Yeah, that was the first film that I saw multiple times. That still scared me. Oh, man, when I saw it for the first time, because my brother had been to it and he was older than me. I think, I think it was. I saw R, it in was the it R eighteen. I never saw it in a theatre. 78 is when it came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same year as Star Wars. Yeah. How's yeah. that? Uh, no, Star Wars 77. 77. 77. I think Alien came out in 79. But, you know, I do know these days. All right, you know? <laughs> That's okay. That's right. But the interesting thing was that I agree with you with Alien. I saw that film. And I, well, what, what it was when my brother went and saw it and came back and went, it's so terrifying. And that was actually true. There were people who ran out of the cinema. People threw up in the cinema and stuff when that came out. It was pretty, you know, nobody had ever seen anything like that. So I was terrified to see it. Yeah. But I knew I was going to see it and it came out on video. And that's when I saw it. And I must admit, just knowing how scared I knew I was going to be, watching the titles terrified me. Yeah. I've done this with my daughter too. I've said to her, you know, and she keeps talking, I want to see a really scary movie. And I said, why don't we watch Alien? And no, she says, because I've told her it's the scariest movie uh-huh. ever. And she says, I want to watch scary movies, but I don't want to watch that scary movie. I said, why? Because I'll get scared. <laughs> and yeah, okay, yeah, that's the idea. But you know what I mean? I think what she has been quite aware of is she's protecting the fact she won't sleep. Oh. For a long time after that. You know, it's like Jaws and stuff. She's like, I'll watch Jaws. That isn't scary. When you go, go swimming again. You know? Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty funny, isn't it? But, yeah. When so. you very, very first started doing this, mm. I think I certainly, as someone who works in radio and television, mm-hmm. I made um, my own radio shows mm. by pressing pause on the tape deck and then unpause and recording my voice and pressing pause, waiting for the good song to come on, then unpause. And then wow, because I used to do tape stories as well um, when I was really young, like seven, six or seven or eight years old, and then I went to doing films. So I used to do tapes, and I'd make sound effects, and so I'd get, like, little bits of bush and... Oh, do going Foley. through the bush, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, and all like that, and you'd oh, play yeah. music, and it was kind of cool. And you'd and- do sound effects... And we used to find things that we'd build stories around sound effects. Like my brother could do a really good biplane. Like, <laughs> and so we would just go, right, we'll do a World War I biplane story. Uh-huh. You're like, here we are. And then you'd always go, you'd go hey, hey, we're up here in the biplane, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you know what I mean? It was pretty funny as kids. It's amusing. And then 
you just do other things like like he used to do really good sea waves like so we go okay we'll do a beach story <laughs> so you're still a kid this is a, this is your what you're doing with your I'm still a child I'm an infant my wife said that to me actually just this morning oh you're still a she child she said to me she says you are still a child but not in the well you know what I say to my fiance when she says that to me I was like yes and you're here exactly <laughs> you I choose know. to be here I know I, I did say to her I said we've got children why did you do is this what is this new <laughs> You know, but I must admit, no, now the kids are getting older. I think there's something very important about, and it's it's actually something that um, the advertising industry particularly, but this, it, it is a Peter Pan industry. It's full of a lot of people who, who kind of get into it and don't really change as they get older. So, so I know, just want to explore the idea that what you did for play as a kid mm. is the thing you managed to turn into the thing that pays you bills. That's, well, it's pretty lucky, I think, from the point of view of doing advertising with humour. I mean, for instance, there are people out there who work in advertising who do, like, food shots, and people out there who do perfume hair, or stuff like that. And I'm lucky I do, I shoot comedy and I shoot funny stuff. Because it makes time... things so much more enjoyable and fun. When was the first time you played something back to someone that didn't know you, and you got a laugh out of them? First time. I used to make funny videos with my brother and they were really obscene and wrong because we used to listen to Cheech and Chong all the time uh -huh. on the tapes um, and so we sort of wanted to make video versions of that and so we were talking about stuff we knew nothing about um, because we were in Wellington so for instance all the drug references we didn't even know what they were we didn't know what's tide stick or what's this or what's a lewd or we didn't know any of that but we thought that was funny and cool and so we'd sort of make these obscene comedy things about stuff we knew nothing about but my dad knew some about it not that he ever smoked dope or anything like that but he'd come in and watch them and laugh his head off so that was the first laugh we got even though my father really should have been laughing at this obscene stuff but making your dad doing, laugh like that is pretty cool as a kid your dad laughs, you know, it's good. And considering, you know, um, I think a lot of it also comes from, uh, and I think the need of, of, of enjoying making people laugh often does come from um, a certain lack of, how could I say, self-confidence. It's actually quite true. Yeah. You know, or guys who are comedians and stuff like that, they're normally doing it because they're, they're not necessarily the most secure individuals. So when you made somebody laugh, mm. What feeling did it give you? you? Felt loved. I know this. Now we're starting to. No, no I'm, I'm really joking. Honestly no, no, asking. but I'm saying no. When you, uh, I think anybody who 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 makes people laugh, I think they feel really good that people are enjoying. It. I mean, like at a dinner party or anywhere or at the pub or or anything like that. You know, kids at school are like that. I mean, my my both my kids have a very really good sense of humour. I know Stella makes a lot of her classmates laugh. And that you know? has been a thing that. Is a constant theme in everything you've done. So even the no, stuff see, you did I, in high school. No, see, I was a very serious guy oh. at school. Yeah, I was very. Um, I was a brooding artist with glasses, with the the, the dress sense of a of a mailman, and like a a. a I never had no, like no woman would go near me. No girl would go near me, and I don't blame them. I look back at photos, and it's the high. Um, but then I started to got contact lenses and started to work on my personality. No, no. And then I actually started to get a bit more confidence. But no, I was a very serious young guy at school. 
Um, I used to paint. Oh. I still do. Um, and so I came from an art background. I was either going to be a painter or a filmmaker. And to tell you the truth, when I was at school and I was doing this national competition, there was nobody else doing it. So I went, well, I'm going to, this will be a lot easier way of having a, making a living if I want to do it for a job. Um, my dad was so supportive. It wasn't like, well, that's not a job, you know, which was, which was, which was great. And Because um, everybody, everybody now can, I could pick up my phone. iPhone. And make a movie, put and it on I a computer. Could, I have the technical ability to make a limited, but I could, with one lens and Ooh. terrible sound, I could, I could make a story. But, and I can edit it and I can publish it. It's in my pocket. See, that's interesting though. The old cameras were like that. You had a Super 8 camera, had one lens, it had a zoom lens. It had sh no sound or shit sound. I mean, we had all the same problems. All the same, but it was just so much more laborious but and there was harder still, to do. But there was also a, a massive barrier to entry in that you had the, the initial expense of buying the camera yeah. and then having to pay for the developing every mm. time. So mm. how did you even know as a kid, because you mentioned earlier I, I had a Super 8 camera, mm. how did you even know as a kid that, oh, that's the thing that you have to make the pictures that move? Like, how did you even know? Well, I tell you, it was, it, I actually saw the first of these spot-on film competitions. Actually, Peter Jackson entered the first one. And he made a animated thing with dinosaurs and stuff, which was actually pretty cool. And uh, I watched that and I went, I could do that. Yeah. And I think that because I saw other kids doing it. And you're 10? I was 10 then. I was about nine. But yeah, and that's when I went to my dad and said, could I get a camera? And I was, you know, because my dad was a building contractor and he had been a carpenter, you know, um, and we came from a working class family. So I wasn't sure if he'd be able to get me a camera. But he did, which is really cool. And then I, you know, and I... He said, as long as you use it, and I used it every weekend, you know. Now, what um, con was it? Was the one that had the daylight reels? Yeah, no, yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, uh, a Canon 512. Oh, yeah. Um, but then, um, and then I think for my 15th birthday, he bought me a, um, a Canon GX88E, which was a um, video camera. And it was just when VHS came out. But you used to shoot it on, with a porter pack you'd yeah. have beside you. And then the batteries would go, would last like no time at all. So he hooked it up to a car battery that I could carry around. So it was like, uh, yeah, it was, it was ludicrous, all the stuff that I had. Um, but that was what I made all those, those student films with. And I started making kids, yeah, kids movies. I started making monster movies and stuff. And then I decided, how am I gonna get my classmates to be? I'll make war movies, because they want to dress up as soldiers. We need a biplane oh, yeah, sound. Yeah, I've yeah, got yeah, a biplane yeah, yeah, sound. Yeah, exactly, and a biplane sound. But then, um, so the, you're editing in camera at this point? No, 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 no. No, I started doing it, and then, and then I, I actually cleaned um, this whole building to you get some edit time to be able to cut these movies that I had. You know, these really special movies I had to enter for this film competition. So I made a lot of different stuff, but they had my sort of my major works. But how and did the, how did sorry to interrupt you, but how did you even know that? Um, how did you even explore the process of filmmaking? Because it was such, it was so much then, it was very much behind a wall of, you know, we shoot this shot, which is the single, and then we shoot from the wide, and then we shoot, you know, this camera over here. I just watched a lot of films. And so I just looked at them and I could see them, yeah. And I actually studied editing as well. So I learned okay. how to cut. Uh, I actually learned how to cut when I left school and um, a guy called Michael Horton taught me, who actually cut once were Warriors, and cut one of my feature films, because I've done four features. And my first two features, for instance, very different from, 
I mean, I, as I said, I was a very serious young man. So when I did my first movies, they were art films. Um, uh, and two of them were, you know, did all the film festival circuits and stuff like that. And, and they were, yeah, real art movies. And then, I made a, um, and then I made Separation City with Joel Edgerton about four or five years ago. And that was, that was and set in New Zealand. Um, and, then, uh, and then I got, and got to do a, a Hollywood film, which was a kind of mad comedy with uh, Anna Kendrick, um, which the guys from Anchorman produced, which was, which was awesome. So, and I'm still doing films as well, so I'm developing those. That's so I'm, I guess I'd just like to get a, a picture of, as, as a kid, this mm. thing that you started out doing audio-wise, you're telling stories the whole time. So mm -hmm. you started doing it on cassette, mm -hmm. then you started doing it on Super 8, mm -hmm. uh, then you started doing it on video. Mm -hmm. um, and was this just consuming all of your time that you weren't at yeah. school? Yeah. Well, I told you, you know, I'd never get a date or anything. And so, you know, I would literally, <laughs> I'd do it all the time. And, um, yeah, and I think, I, I think the interesting... And your folks saw that and went, well, it's keeping them out of trouble. I wasn't even going to get into trouble. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't going to get into trouble. Um, it's Wellington, remember, too. But it's like, um, yeah, I know. And the really interesting thing is that I was a very, very conservative young guy. So I never really did any of what teenagers do. So I didn't go through any of that stuff. And that's what I said about a Peter Pan thing, because now I get into advertising. And then I kind of become a teenager in my 30s. You know what I mean? Like most people in advertising. Now. So you were... You finished high school mm. and you'd already won these film competitions, so mm. you had a fair amount of not only um, experience yep. by just having done it yourself. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming a couple of hundred times. Mm. You, you've buttoned on, you've buttoned off, you've, you've figured out what made the shot not work or what made the shot work. Mm. And so by the time you leave, you've got not only these, these film uh, competitions that you've won, mm. you've also got all the people that you met through that. Mm. Who was the first guy that... I guess, you know, everyone, at some point in our lives, mm. there's someone that gives us permission to go ahead and yep. do this thing that you think you're good at, and then someone says, no, you are actually good at it. Yep. Go ahead. You're okay. I, I let you. Where you yep. go. Um, there was certainly someone in my career. Was there someone in your career that said, hey, you should do this? Well, there was, and I was about to say this guy called Douglas Jenkins, but I wasn't right. The first person who did that was Sam Neill. Now, he was the judge on the Spot on Film competition that I made a film about the First World War. So I made these, these war movies, but then I actually made a war movie about something that was quite moving, because it was about my grandmother's brother who died in the song. Um, and so uh, Sam gave me the award for this thing, gave me this direction award, and he said the most wonderful things. Um, um, and uh, I think from my memory, because I've got a good memory, he said along the lines of, World War One in Kilburnie is quite an incredible thing, which is Kilburnie was in Wellington. He said, um, but it's a film of serious intent, and I take my hat off to him. And I went, that to me was, and I think that was also, everybody was really excited about that, because Sam Neill was like the biggest New Zealand actor of that generation, for sure. He's still a very big deal. He's awesome. Yeah. I saw him in the um, Hunt for the Wilder People. Oh, and he's extraordinary he's, It's a great movie. I mean, I, I, I loved Tiger's stuff for a long time, and I know Tiger actually acted for me in a few ads. What? Yeah, and some Moro ads, which was pretty cool. He's, uh, no, he's a, he's a serious That and Boy genius, are two of my yeah. favourite films. Um, and, and, and what I love is they're just, there's nowhere in the world they could be made except in New Zealand. And he has such a beautiful and un unique... I mean, I, my favourite part of that, of, of um, 
uh, of Hunt for the Wilder People is his speech as the as their priest. Yeah. When he talks, yeah, and he, yeah, and he, I, I kept looking at going, he's acting like he's pissed. You know what I mean? And it's kind of funny because it looks like the priest had a bit too much wine. It's really funny. So it's Sam, quite brilliant. So Sam Neill, Mr. Jurassic Park himself, uh, gave you this award. Yeah, and this is a great thing because my boy loves Jurassic Park and we went to the opening of Hunt for the Wilder People. He was there. And the little boy was there too. I can't remember his name. Remember wonderful his name. actor. But guess what? We want to go back to advertising. Tyker did an ad for smoking marijuana in New Zealand, and he cast that kid in the ad, that little boy. And that's how he got the lead role because he was so good in this ad. Right. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a brilliant ad about. It's it's sort of um, a take on a, a wonderful short film he he made um, called I think Two Cars One Night um, about. Um, uh, Maori kids waiting for their dads, I think, who are in a pub. Oh, yeah. And they're both sitting in their cars talking to each other. And they they sort of took that and then used that as the idea for this ad, or a basis for the idea of this ad. And that's where he found that boy. And Shit he's amazing. just got real. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When he's on the bolt action rifle. Yeah, I know. And, so good. And, and what I love about that is that he creates the, that film creates its, its own universe mm. in terms of rules. It's like this is this is the you know the rules that we have for how this is going to run, and it's brilliant because he just goes for it. So let's talk about that. When you're making a, a, an ad, you've mm. got 30 seconds, sometimes 15, to get three acts, an entire universe worth of rules, uh, attention, and a resolution. With so many frames, you can probably count them on two hands. 750. You've counted 50 and 30. Yeah, I used, to, I used to hold them. 750 frames. You've I got. used to cut on film. I used to cut ads on film, of course. You know, and do this. You know, that's that's five, six frames there, and uh, yeah, seven hundred and fifty. Yeah, seven hundred and fifty in thirty seconds. That's to, all you got to tell your story. Tell your story. But the thing is also um, often, you know, the nature of. I think the nature of writing, because remember, it's always I think great ideas. It's what it's about. Great ideas. Um, You'll get a script, and it'll be two pages long. And you go, this is this can't be thirty seconds. There's no way. Uh, so the best the best writing is the scripts that you that work to their time. And normally they're really it's really simple. Of the commercials that you've done, what would you say is the one that you are, you know, when it comes to say for example setting up the rules of a of of, a, of this fantastical world worlds. There's 2,000 men in robes running through a field. Well, that's the one I was about to say. Oh, okay. Big ad would be my okay. my favorite because I think that also was an ad that that's was culturally changed uh, a lot of things in advertising as well. How so? Uh, I think because of the nature of the comment it was making about advertising, the way it did it. Um, I think there's a lot of lot of things that um, I mean uh, that ad was voted in. DNAD in London as the greatest beer ad of all time, beating all the Guinness ads, everything, which was which was amazing. And um, for folks who haven't seen it, it's I'm I'm gonna guess a couple of hundred men on set, 350 guys on the ground that you must and then have done everybody many takes else, with. which is that that was almost just after the technology had come out in Lord of the Rings, which was a thing called massive. So we used that technology to make all the people on the ground. The crowd. Uh, the crowd, yeah. Okay, and they are out in a field, and much like you may have seen at a halftime show at an NFL Super Bowl or a college football... Well, it's also the, it's taking the piss out of the British Airways ads oh, that right. had all those hundreds of people form, you know, like a big eye. And they formed you know, shapes and they, the Yeah, and they all came across the world and joined each other and stuff. Right. Yeah. 
And so inside this commercial you're making for beer, you're yep. also going, isn't this ridiculous? We're making a massive commercial about beer. Yeah, and the whole idea, it's a big ad. It's a very expensive ad. It's a bloody big ad. We hope it sells some bloody beer. Um, and that was very much to the, the same case. But it was the truth. Exactly, and they didn't research it either. But that was the truth. That that you know there was a it was a kind of ad going yeah we do hope to sell some bloody beer we're gonna look pretty stupid if this thing doesn't work because it was a big expensive ad, um, so yeah so there's a real truth about that but you see the that Carlton Draft ads um, which I'm so proud of the whole history of that um, with uh, see there was one the one before that was the man needs a canoe which is the black and white one where guys were wandering around with canoes which started the whole idea of made from beer which is just a brilliant advertising concept because it sort of doesn't make sense, but of course it makes sense. It's made from beer. So it's the absurdity of that, which I think is exquisite. So inside this 750 frames you've got mm. to tell this story... You're well, that was two minutes. Sorry, that was one minute. That was a 60-second. That, that was a longer ad. one. But there was a 30-second version of it, which sort of started halfway through. I didn't know there was a longer one. No, or, no, no. I saw it was no, a TV the, one. The 60 is the... That's, that's what it was, and then there was a 30-second cut down which we just came in halfway through because <laughs> we couldn't do anything else. So that was kind of pretty funny. But Camina Barana, see, that was really interesting. The music for that thing cost a fortune. Yeah. The rights, but they also got the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra to play it. They had 300 singers come in and do it. It was extraordinary. And you want to hear something funny? Very funny. The creators wanted to try and see, rather than saying frickin', they said the real F word. And the choir said no. Which I thought was quite funny. I mean, <laughs> we're not going to swear. We'll say frickin'. Well, we won't say <clears throat> So, yeah, it was pretty funny. When you are in these, you know, in these 30 seconds you've got to set up uh, mm. the who, what, where, why, how, and then resolve it. Yeah. How do you then blow that out into making a feature? Like, what's, what were the things you could take with you to, to a feature? What sort of things are you like, oh, I can't do this now? Um, well, at the speed of shooting, I mean, because I shoot all the time and I shoot a lot of stuff, so it, it's like, um, you know, if I was playing rugby or something like that, it means I'm, I'm practicing every day, working every day. Now, a lot of directors don't ever have that opportunity, um, and sometimes they'll do a movie one every five years, and in this part of the world, it's, it's a hobby, you know what I mean? So from that point of view, it's, it's even more difficult to, to you know, keep, keep working. Um, so I think what I take from it is... Um, uh, the speed that I get in terms of the skills of that, working with actors all the time. Uh, you get to experiment with a lot of technology with doing ads, which is great. But I started making short films before I ever shot, started doing ads. So I was making 16mm th uh, short films for film festivals and stuff, and they were art movies um, that, uh, that were, you know, I think one of them was 24 minutes, another one was 28 minutes. So I made a number, about four short films, and then I started working on a feature. So my first feature I shot, which was Terranova, I was 27 when I made that. Um, and that was, uh, that was in 90, came out in 99. Kia ora, good afternoon. Any Zealand wish to advise Kia ora. Flight NZ Sorry? 918 service to Auckland. Sorry? He's in the final stages of boarding and invites all customers to board. There isn't anybody in here. 56. <laughs> I don't know. There isn't anybody in Flight SQ222 service to Singapore is in the final stage. Well, there's stages one bloke left in the lounge. You can probably just walk over to him. You could tap on the shoulder. Yeah, say, Bruce, it's time to go. I'm sure they've had plenty of people asleep. But uh, hey, can I ask a, a big favour, girls? 
you need can a they, Could they make an announcement to let us know when we have to leave? That'd be really funny. Over this guy, can the two guys in the chair, please? <laughs> that'd be funny. That'd be good. Nah, yeah, that'd be funny, wouldn't it? Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Um, <laughs> I know. I think no, it'd be really right. funny to say, you know, hey, can we, can we, no, no, just go, hey, can the two guys who are, yeah, over the thing, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, you can now depart. No, we're waiting for you to leave or something like that. Yeah, in ten, in ten minutes from now, say, can the two guys with the camera crew please wrap up? We can't go home until you leave. Well, that'd be quite funny. It'd be quite good. Excellent. Oh, give me ten minutes. Oh, actually, you know what would also be funny? It would be funny as if they say, hey, can the two guys who are being really noisy keep it down? Because no. we know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them to call your name that you've liked Yeah, as long as there's nobody in here, I don't want anybody to get confused. <laughs> you know. Well, that was funny. I'll oh, never get called won't. back to make Let another end New Zealand ad again. There we go. Yeah. Okay, so anything else? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I, I want to get to the part where. Uh, because not everyone's going to direct an ad. Not everyone's going to direct a feature. Mm. Uh, not everyone's going to be in, in charge of hundreds of thousands of film budget, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of film budget disappearing every hour mm-hmm. like you are. Mm-hmm. But everyone is going to be faced with multiple personalities that they're going to have to satisfy all at once. What have you discovered in your career of dealing with all these people? What have you discovered is the thing that makes people want to do their best job for you? Um, I- I think the thing that I learnt um, when I was younger, um, I didn't listen as much. And so I thought, right, this is how I'm going to do it. I think most young creative people are like that, you know. So um, when, I, when, I, when I realised that when I listened, learnt, and took more time to absorb everything in, then I realised as a director working with people, it was about me having people I work with who I trust, who I can make feel um, I need them to make my, my work as good as it can be. And also to be in a situation where I can make them feel excited and inspired. So one thing that I think I am known for is that I um, can always create a lot of really positive energy when we work. A lot of people have a lot of fun when I work with them. And um, I think they, they, they always feel that, that they never for a moment feel like I won't actually either listen to what they, what they are wanting to do, and particularly even working with agencies. I always make sure they're right beside me. I don't put them over in another. Sometimes the director works away from the agency and the client. They get stuck over there. Um, I don't do that. They're all around me. And I think that being inclusive like that is just... Um, because I, I think there's no, there, there shouldn't really, from that point of view, I think being insecure um, gets you nowhere. You got to be just up front, you know. So if you've got a problem, I want to know here, rather than you know somebody wanders all the way across and we've just done something. I go, now that was brilliant. What? What do you want now? And they'll tap you know, and go, well, I just don't think it's any good. You know that sort of stuff. It's always good to know why we're in there. And what have you learned about what have you learned about delegation? Um, yeah, I've learned. Uh, one thing I've learned about that is that if you've got the people around you who you really trust, it's not an issue at all. Um, I make a lot of decisions very quick. I work very fast, so I make a lot of a lot of a lot of decisions very quickly. And just 
I don't, I don't kind of procrastinate much at all. Um, and uh, as I said, I shoot fast, but I think when sometimes with comedy, it's good. Comedy and rep repetition doesn't really go together very well. Um, yeah, if, you, you, by the, if you're doing four or more takes, you're gonna. It's not funny. It's not good. Uh, and I've been really lucky to work with some really fine actors. Like, um, and as I said, making so many ads. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's. I love actors and I love working with actors and I would say my closest friends are actors, all of them are actors. There's a lot of directors who kind of don't like actors. Oh, I love them. I think so they talk to me about decision making because you're going to have to make decisions that will either save you or cost you $100,000 at a time mm. six times a day yeah. when you're making a feature film or making a commercial. Um, yeah. What have you learned about decision making? Um, I think... Uh, I think what I've, what I've learned about it is that um, I, I think if you, can, if you can actually see the wood for the trees from the point of view, if you go, look, if, if we get another camera here, we're going to save three hours overtime and it's going to cost us a fortune compared to that. So what I do, and it's not always just a budget thing, but it is actually about going, there are ways of being smart about this. Um, Quite often, people just panic about something going over in one area, but then I go, look, oh, we can actually get things back on another area. And particularly when it comes to schedule, getting, getting the film shot and getting it on time is uh, always a challenge. But that's, is that the thing that sets directors apart? No, I don't believe so. I mean, I think what sets directors apart um, <laughs> is talent. I mean, it, it's interesting that... Um, you know, I'm, my ambitions are um, very much in, in feature films as well, and I have really haven't really been able to pursue that as much as I'd want to, um, simply because my career's been so busy um, in advertising. But uh, from that other point of view, I love that too, and it's actually I've been really um, I've been really enjoying that too, and I get a lot from it. I think I, I think when I made the big ad, I actually realised that people were really enjoyed this stuff. It wasn't just an ad. Some of the stuff, some of it was actually people really loved them, and they never forgot them. And uh, so then I, I suppose I just had more internal pride, and then started to go, yeah, this is actually really something I am proud of. I think I was, but then I really um, embraced that. Um, but now in film, I really want to kind of go back to making, because the, the last film that I made was um, pure entertainment and it was in, yeah, and it was very this much the one like... With Craig the yeah, yeah, yeah. The one, the cra it was like a crazy, it's a crazy comedy and uh, like some of the mad ad stuff that I'd done. Um, but I don't know whether that's actually necessarily a style that I'd want to repeat. Um, but it was awesome to do that and it did a lot of good things for me, a lot of good things for me. And I shot that movie in 16 days. <clears throat> and that's what that's all I that's uh, that's what I had, and it was like, oh, cool, and it's like you're kidding me, <laughs> um, and it was remarkable what we did, how we did that film and, and that time, and uh, yeah, and it was one of those <laughs> it was one of those awesome things where I got my first residual check because yeah, we've always been I think the DJ was always trying to get um, residuals from ads, but <laughs> they went nah, forget that. There's no we weren't gonna we're not gonna do that. We pay enough money, you know, for all this other stuff. Um, but that would have been good as a, as a commercial director, get residuals for ads. But, um, no, I got my first check 
from, you know? This guy got my first residual check. Some mailbox thing. money. Um, and it was kind of cool. I went, wow, that's good. Um, uh, for an undisclosed amount, but it was good. Oh, that's all right. It was good. And I thought, and, and, but I knew how much the film had to make before I got it. So I was really happy about that. Because um, obviously the film had done really well from that point of view. Oh, great. Uh, but they, see, we made that movie and they had already made their money on that picture before we even finished shooting because it was made so low budget. They called it micro budget pictures. Yes. Um, and I think, that, of course, they looked at me because they knew how fast I could shoot yeah. and all those sort of things. Um, and uh, it's really interesting that movie now. What I love is it's become the stoner classic, it, 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 it's become a, a cult classic. It was weird, my daughter again kept saying to me, some, somebody who, I don't know, um, like, um, and some famous singer, you know, Daddy, that's his favourite movie, your film, you know, one of your favourite movies. <laughs> I went, oh, wow. Um, and she said, can I see it? I said, never. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are some, some truly, truly obscene things in that picture. So let's, anyway. let's get this uh, to... if. If you could talk to the teenage version of you right now, it's probably not out there with a Super 8 camera making plasticine stop motion, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's probably out there with an iPhone or a Galaxy or a Samsung yep. or something or even the webcam yep. um, with the ability to cut, has a dream of, I want to yep. tell, I want to be a filmmaker. What, yep. what should they do? I, um, I've done a bit of teaching um, um, and it's been weird. I've done teaching in all. I've been. I've done teaching in Los Angeles. I've done teaching in Canada. Um, I've done teaching at the film school here and in New Zealand. And I've always been asked that thing. What do you say? And I, I say, make films, make movies. And and there doesn't need to be an excuse for it. You can make a movie about. You can make a movie about making cereal. If if you've got no, if there's no, <clears throat> if there's nobody around and you don't even have an idea, the idea of literally just taking some shots, put them together, have a narrative, see how you'd shoot it, how, how to be interesting, how to find um, ways of telling a story. Um, and that's what I used to do. I'd shoot something on Saturday and I'd cut it on Sunday and made sure I only had to finish it by Sunday. I'd go to school and then I'd do another one. And whether that was... Um, a, 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 I remember one I did, which was with a friend of my sister's and she was basically... A, it was sort of... I don't know, kind of, it probably made as much sense as a French film. She was just walking with a rose in her hand, goes out to, uh, out to an edge of a cliff and looks longingly and then walks back. But it took me a day to shoot it and I put it with music and stuff and it didn't mean anything, but it was a, like a scene in a movie. So that would be my advice. My advice would be just go out, shoot and start to shoot. And, and the more that you shoot and the more repetition you have, the more you'll realise the mistakes and you'll just have your own film school all the time. And it's easy to do, it really is. It's, and it, 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 it is almost like being, say you want to be a stills photographer. Um, you know, most people who want to do that and they're young just take a camera out and just photograph. Um, you, can, you can do that also, you know, just with a, with a camera and that would be my advice, just do it. Keep doing it and even if it gets really hard, you just keep going and doing it. Do you need to find a mentor? Do you need to find someone along the way that'll tell you what's good and bad? Um, I think what it's worth doing is looking at it and showing people. And uh, and then, yeah, and I think, yeah, finding somebody um, you may be able to show who's in the industry who can give you um, feedback and ideas is very, it's always very valuable. I was the last of the apprenticeships uh, in New Zealand, really. Um, uh, Jane Campion 
helped me and Vincent Ward helped me and Vincent and I became really good friends, still are very good friends. Um, and uh, they were great mentors in a way. Um, and um, I think that's something that's missing. But my company, Plaza Films, the directors that I have there, I, uh, I talk to all those directors and I actually, because I never had that in any of the other production companies that I was in as a, as a commercials director. You just had to do it on your own. I kind of, you know, I'll, I'll look through stuff and they'll show me scripts and I'll talk to them about stuff and tell them about techniques and kind of do that. I try and teach them and, and show them stuff. And I've had a lot of directors who have gone on to be very, very successful and go and make their own companies. And so I've been very feel? happy with that. It makes me feel really good. And it, it makes me feel really good from the point of view is that um, I think that um, I love the industry and I actually, I actually really love the karma that comes from that. It's good. It's fun, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and it is, we're making ads, you know. We're not digging ditches. That's right. What did I say? We could be driving a truck. Actually, on the way out here, there was a serious road rage uh, incident that was as bad as I've ever seen. A guy in a truck who got out of his truck in the traffic to start punching this guy in a taxi, in the passenger seat of the taxi. And it was like out of control. And there were cars behind it and like they stopped the traffic. Um, who cares? <laughs> but it was quite a dramatic, so there you go, you wanna make a movie, go make a movie about that. I'm sure somebody must have got it on camera. They were both yelling at each other going, they were swearing and screaming and going, yeah, piss we get out and let's have a fight. Come on. He goes, I'll smash your head in. It was really awful. And, you know, they were literally, like, he was getting out of the car and it was... What matters that much? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, thanks so much Is for that all good? sitting yeah. in and having a chat with me in this beautiful I've loved lounge. it. It's been really awesome. And right. uh, Anytime. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime, man. Thank you. And I can't wait for you to do this little message to my daughter. She will be so excited. Oh, yeah, let's She will be so excited. Like, Dad suddenly won't be embarrassing. You're embarrassing, Dad. You're embarrassing me. Well, let's do it. We will do it. That was Paul Middleditch. Don't forget, you can watch an edit of that conversation that Paul and I had online. It's at betterwaytofly.com.au. There's also some behind-the-scenes footage of the making of that new Air New Zealand campaign. All that content featuring Dave the Goose is up there. Uh, There was a creative agency from New Zealand called True behind the idea, and Paul, of course, was the director that put it together. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you have a great week. I hope you look after yourselves. Um, only a few more weeks to go if you're doing exams they're almost ended or they're coming to an end if you're doing work there's only about six more weeks until you know it's that Christmas break we're almost there we're almost there my friends we're almost there Um, I put something up on Instagram this week but I'd just like to remind you if you're kind of a bit the news is a bit weird at the moment there's a bit of heavy stuff going on in the news but it's not always all bad just remember that somewhere in the world there is a puppy that needs a tummy rub right now so it's not 100% bad there is still some awesome left around and uh, just remember just if you put all those tummy rubs together it adds up to a pretty powerful energy up against the all bad doesn't it anyway I gotta go Uh, have a great week I love you for listening thanks very much to you if you're a supporter on Patreon until we speak next time sleep well and dream of beautiful things 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 